Welcome to the rooftop. It's another driveway edition. And uh, I think I might need this driveway chat more than you do. But uh, the topic today on this early December morning is getting back up. The origins of Last Out, Elegy of a Green Beret. I have wrestled with this podcast episode man I don't know what it is but you know it's 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 all around this question of how do we get back up how do we get back up when we've been dealt uh a blow that that knocks us down that 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 causes us to stumble or fall and this is a a question that we all have to ask ourselves it's it's a question that ultimately we all have to answer and it's something that I'm wrestling with right now. It's something that I'm struggling with that in real time. And I, you know, much like in the days when I walked this driveway with you and talked about the Afghanistan collapse and what was going on with that and, and uh, the challenges around that, it's, it's, this is kind of like that. But I thought it would be appropriate to maybe contextualize this a little bit and and bring it into real time because you know this is for me this is about getting back up uh this is about staying in the game this is about not not quitting this is about staying engaged and making an impact in spite of you know what Stephen Pressfield calls resistance that self-sabotage that shows up between us and our our higher purpose and our goals and I'll back it up to a couple of weeks ago. I I got some news from uh, one of my team members that a dear friend of mine uh, had lost his life. Uh, his name is uh, Brad Bynum, and Brad and I served together in special forces. Uh, Brad was a National Guard special forces officer, but one of the finest men uh, I worked with, and just a really decent guy. We deployed together in uh to afghanistan in 2006 2007 he uh really competent hard-working officer and uh we we became really good friends on that deployment he had deployed to afghanistan prior to that um and had seen his share of combat in southern afghanistan and brad and i maintained our friendship over the years you know he I retired, and, and then he, he stayed in a bit longer. He was a little younger than me. Um, I retired in 2013 because I didn't like where things were going with the Afghan war. I didn't like where things were going with the careerism in the military. Um, and, you know, I'd been selected for a battalion command, but I just thought, you know, it's, it's not in special forces. It's not what I signed on to do, so I'm, I'm, I'm going to turn it down. And I turned down three of them, and then eventually retired around uh, April 2013, I believe, and started moving down a different path away from really the the military industrial complex and and all that goes with that and kind of moved away from that traditional route and and in more in the realm of speaking and training and leadership and storytelling, as you all know. I mean, this podcast was born from that effort, but also what was born out of that was a real love of storytelling, a real love of human connection and and i kept telling myself you know even in special forces where we pride ourselves as being the rapport masters of all the special operations units you know the the modern day lawrences of arabia we don't even really train in relationship building or human connection or storytelling or any of those interpersonal skills we just grade you on that shit (laughs) we just expect you to be able to do it we know it's important we don't really know the science of how to do it but, but, you know, we expect you to be able to do it. And so I got fascinated with this question of what if there is a way to, 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 to harness the art and science of human connection, of storytelling, of relationship building, and, and social capital, and, and what if that could be taught? What if that could be taught in the Special Forces Q course? What if that could be taught to law enforcement? What if that could be taught to parents in this low-trust society we live in, or bankers who are uh, acting like complete shitheads 
you know, or politicians who are becoming divisionists in this world and, and fomenting division between in-groups and out-groups instead of bridging trust the way they're supposed to do so that our civil society can survive. What if this could be taught? And, and so that became my path, and that became a path I'm still on. Um, three steps forward, four steps back, it seems, but that is the path I'm on. But it also was this deep desire to help our veterans and our military families come home from this long war. And the reason mainly was because my transition was shitty. Um, if you haven't seen my TED Talk, I hope you watch it, The Generosity of Scars. You can just Google it. But I, I had a really, really bad transition. I, I struggled with my purpose, with my identity, and almost took my own life. And it seems surreal and almost out of body to say that now, but that's the truth. And it got really dark for me. And um, coming out of that, a series of events happened for me that, for me, that allowed me to really connect with some people who were <clears throat> very, very prolific in the world of storytelling. And one of them, Bo Eason, a former football player turned playwright, who had written a play called Runt of the Litter about his impossible journey to the NFL as a scrawny ranch kid, him and his brother, Tony Eason. And it's just the most amazing story. And, and, and he, over time, trained me to be a storyteller. He trained me to speak from the stage and eventually convinced me to write this play called Last Out, Elegy of a Green Beret. <clears throat> and I didn't want to write it. But he said, it'll heal you. It'll help you. It'll help you find yourself. You don't, it doesn't have to see the light of day. And, you know, I, I, I've, I've learned that the difference between an amateur and a pro is a pro knows when to take, knows how to surround themselves with solid coaches. And then when they do, they take the coaching, right? And uh, that's what I did. I took his coaching and I started working on this play. Even though I didn't want to do it, I thought it was stupid I'm not a playwright. I've never written a play. I don't know the first thing about theater. I started to write it. And you know what? It did make me feel better. It did make me feel as if I was putting not just my lived experience, but the lived experience of a lot of other warriors and military family members who had fought in this long, my voice broke like I'm in puberty there, who had fought in this long war and didn't have a voice or their voice wasn't heard. So, but I, I just kept grinding on that. And I'll get back to Brad here in a second. I'll go ahead and pivot to him now. You know, Brad stayed in the army, continued to work in the army, but things started to come off the rails for him. Um, transitioning out of the military was equally tough for him. You know, it's tough for a lot of uh, veterans, it, particularly, you know, our, it, it, combat veterans, special operators, they struggle with it. And it's because, you know, you're changing planets you're literally going from one planet to the other. You're going from this planet where everything that you know is about the team. It's about the collective. It's about honor. You know, it, it's about putting your needs behind the needs of the team. That's the military. That's the way it is. And then you transition almost overnight to a society that is the polar opposite of that. That is the antithesis of that. To a society where... Everything is focused on the individual and the needs of the team are subservient to that, right? Even our constitution, everything about this civil society that we live in here is about the individual, not the team. And you've got to learn how to take care of yourself, put yourself out there. And that's, that just runs counter to what most veterans think. Even their very purpose and identity is buried in this notion of the collective, of the team, of putting the team before oneself and, 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 Brad and so many others, myself included, struggled mightily to find that way. In fact, a recent poll shows that three out of five veterans, three out of five, feel like strangers in their own country. Now you tell me, right? Um, and Brad was one of those three. Um, and he really struggled. His, 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 uh, he, and as a way of coping, as a way of making himself feel better, he self-medicated. He drank. Uh, I know about that because I am a recovering alcoholic and I know how easy it is to pick up a drink in the first place. And um, the military certainly doesn't have the market cornered on self-medicating or addiction, but it's, it's very rampant because of a lot of the stressors that come from 
military service, be it PTS, uh, tra traumatic brain injury, tr just transition anxiety, or most recently, moral injury, the violation of one's own values, either by yourself or by those you trust. All of those things compounded on Brad, put pressure on him, and he really struggled. And he would contact me as he went through his transition, and we would talk for long periods of time. And he would come out of it for a while, but then he would go back out on binges. Meanwhile, I continued on my path to just immerse myself in this journey of human connection. I found that both in rooftop leadership, I was able to, to use the, 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 the science and art of human connection as a way to tell the stories of my brothers that I had served with in combat and sisters who weren't around anymore and put their lessons into play in the business arena and honor them and, and also, you know, repurpose their struggles and my struggles in the service of others. I call that the generosity of scars. I found a path for healing. I found a path for assimilation. I found a path for transition. Um, but even more exciting was I found in the nonprofit side was that storytelling, warrior storytelling, was a wonderful way to do so many amazing things in support of the veteran community, uh, but also to get our veterans back in the game, our military family members back in the game, our Gold Star family members uh, leading us the way that they're so great at. Because you see, the thing that so many people in this country, 340 million people don't realize is that our veterans our military members and their families are a national treasure. They have these innate leadership and um, uh, abilities to endure struggle and suffering and move through hard times and lead through ambiguity because the microcosm of combat and even the training that we put these individuals through is that, right? And then they come home and they're thrown into a boardroom or they're thrown into a warehouse, right? But the reality is, Underneath the, the, you know, that iceberg below the waterline are these, are these sometimes dormant skills that are available to us. And it's very, very powerful. So getting our veterans back into the game, helping civilians see the horsepower that our veterans and military family members bring to our civil society in this time of divisionism, shadow tribalism, low trust, the churn that we have, is is huge to me it's like it's part it's a big part of my tracks that i'm that i'm wanting to leave well it turns out that warrior storytelling is a great way to to not just harness that capability but to open it up and let it run in the passing lane and you know uh in the passing lane it's called an hoa lane of the interstate right where you can just run wide open like it's a nascar track and the reason for that is because for years and years and years, there's always been a gap, a civil military gap between our veterans and civilians. Whether And this is as long as we've had warfare, right? But because most societies up until very recently were tribal or, or clan-based or honor-based, the, the, the collective, the team was important. So they would bring these, these warriors back into the fold through storytelling and community engagement, they would, they would sit together and the veterans would share stories of, of what their experiences, their lived experiences were. And in doing that, because story is 70,000 years old and the brain is a, um, is, a, is, a, is, a, is a pattern matching organ that uses story to make sense of the world, it, it, when, we, when someone tells a story, everybody listens autobiographically as if it were their own lived experience. That's why when you watch a film that you really love or read a book, you literally feel as if you are connected to that character. When you listen or watch a TED Talk and you're in the room, you want to go right up to that speaker who moved you and talk to them because you feel like you've known them your own life. That is autobiographical listening. That is narrative transportation. It is this magic of storytelling that allows us in a case like this, to redistribute an emotional load carried by a very few to the broader population. And societies learned this long ago, that storytelling is a great way to redistribute that emotional load. It becomes like an emotional breaching tool, right? To, to open up people to hard conversations because you are now emotionally moved and connected by the story. 
you're open, you're not closed. And now we can get shared perspective. And this is what I found pretty early on after, after my dark period and I started to really dive into to storytelling. And that's when my wife Monty and I founded The Hero's Journey, named after Joseph Campbell's The Hero's Journey, uh, the, the Hero with a Thousand Faces, the book he wrote. And basically his premise is stories about protagonists throughout history or central characters generally have the same structure, right? The hero hears a call. The, the hero reluctantly answers the call. The hero goes on a journey into the belly of the whale after answering this call, you know, and then, and then faces enemies inside, outside, or both, uh, meets a guide along the way, ultimately overcomes those struggles and returns home with a gift for the people, being lessons learned or uh, sharing change that they went through along the way. And this is that, this is that framework, and it turns out that if we can share the art, science, structure, and process of storytelling with veterans, regardless of their rank, with active duty members, with military family members, Gold Star family members, first responders, what we do is we, we equip them with the science part of storytelling that allows them to go into that job interview and have a massive impact beyond just their resume because they can equate why their experience as a truck driver in Fallujah actually has such a big impact on this trucking company because of these experiences. And that's just one example. It equips uh, a female Marine staff sergeant to sit down with her uh, 10 year old and talk about why mom sometimes has these mood swings through narrative. It, it allows um, a, 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 an Air Force veteran to get up on the stage and share their story at a high school with kids uh, about overcoming struggle. It's just a range of things, but it's, it's the skills that we all need because we are all the protagonists in our own story. This is the thing about storytelling. The brain navigates the world through story. So you right now, as you're listening to this podcast, you are living in a narrative. Every single day, your brain makes sense of the world by telling itself a story. It doesn't use PowerPoint. It doesn't use logic. It uses narrative. And you are the protagonist. You are the hero in that journey. And the problem is when we disconnect from our world and we disconnect from our life's narrative and we allow other people to form our narrative or these dopamine dispensers that we carry around with our head in all the time or social media or the 24 hour news cycle, we become misaligned, disconnected from our life's narrative and putting it back together with warrior storytelling allows us to align in thought, word and deed to reclaim our honor, to reclaim our horsepower, to do big things because we are now in sync with our narrative. And I, listen, I have seen this over and over and over again when I've taught storytelling workshops, when I've helped warriors, gold star family members tell their story. And for the first time, when they tell their signature story or their backstory, it's like the metallic click on a safe after they do it. And there's a breakdown and there's tears, but there's also this alignment. And you can just see it, that they're off to the races. And that's what I fell in love with. That's what I came to believe is tremendously powerful, particularly in this time of churn for our society where two thirds of Americans don't trust their neighbors, where people are dealing with each other with contempt, normally reserved for one's enemies. And our divisionist leaders are so irresponsibly fomenting this in-group, out-group shadow tribalism. We need leaders who bridge. We need leaders who did what happened in Operation Pineapple Express and Dunkirk and Moral Compass, right? So this became a real passion for me was this veteran storytelling, but it was kind of hard to get into the veteran population and say, okay, guys, let's do some storytelling. You know, <laughs> it, 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 there are all of these modern world antibodies, resistance mechanisms to this. And so I had to find some ways to get in there and open the door to emotionally breach and get people open to those conversations about the power of narrative competence as a transition tool. And in talking with my mentors about it, it became this play. All of a sudden now this play that I had been working on for, for, for over a year now became something that, what if we did this from the stage? What if we actually got up on the stage um, and told a story that was based in truth, that to both and primarily to civilians? Right, because civilians really need to understand the cost of war. And we transition, no matter how good you are in storytelling as a veteran, 
transition has to be with that civil society, tribal component, the community. We have to work together on that. We need our civilian counterparts to help us overcome some of these obstacles we face, and they need our leadership and our lived experiences in combat in this time of low trust and division. And it's been this way for literally millennia. Um, so, so how, you know, how could we make that happen? And it looked to me like this, a, a, a play could possibly do that. Um, and so I started really leaning into that and thinking about the possibility of that. And I read, I just was happened to reading Gary Sinise's Grateful American, a uh, wonderful book. If you haven't read it, Gary Sinise, one of the most thoughtful, um, contributory individuals, patriotic individuals I've ever met in my life, never served in the military, but has done more for the military community than I would dare say even Bob Hope. You know, like he, Gary literally commits everything he does to our military and first responders. Well, I read his book and in the very early parts of that book, he talked about a play called Tracers that very early in his career, in the early 80s, he had seen performed by this group of veterans led by a guy named John DeFusco, a veteran himself, a Vietnam veteran. And it was about the Vietnam War. And it was trying to help um, people understand what that war was like and the moral injury that, that, that veterans experienced and, and the day-to-day -day suck and joy and love and brotherhood that came with grunt-style combat. And Gary just saw this play and it moved him so much that he convinced the, the writer of the play to allow him to bring it to an emerging little theater called Steppenwolf in Chicago that he, John Malkovich, and other budding actors were forming. And he produced and directed the play. I believe he produced and directed it. But it, it was a big hit, and it still performed to this day, Tracers. When I read that, I closed the book, and I closed my eyes, and I just kind of felt the tears run down my cheeks because it, I knew right there it could be done because it had been done. And I committed myself in that moment to putting this play on its feet, to getting it out there. Because if Gary Sinise could put Tracers on, then we could put Last Out on as a post 9-11 kind of Tracers. And so I talked to my wife about it. And, and she, you know, at the time we were going through all kinds of transition woes ourselves, trying to start a business of speaking and training and now this nonprofit. And now you want to what? You want to actually do this play? And, and to make it even more complicated, I said, you know, I really think it should be veterans in the bulk of the roles, you know, people who have served. Uh, yes, if they're actors too, that's great, but I think it needs to be veterans telling this story because that's going to really, I think, resonate from an authenticity level. And then I paused and I said, babe, I, I think I want to perform the protagonist role, Danny Patton, because, you know, I want to make sure that uh, it can be done. And if it fails, you know, I want it to be me. I don't want to put this on somebody else. She goes, so you're going to become an actor? And I said, yeah. And she just kind of looked at me and said, okay, you know, let's do it. And so at like 50 years old, I started studying acting. I would quietly go to New York. Uh, I would study under Jason Cannon down in Sarasota at Florida Studio Theaters. I would drive like, I think it was four hours both ways. And then I, I would fly to New York and, and train under Carl Bury at his studio. And he trained under Larry Moss, wonderful director and, and teacher, and it, that's how it went. And gradually, I found uh, my old friend, Brian Bachman, who was in the 82nd Airborne and was studying acting over in Orlando, Florida, very gifted young actor. I sent him the script. He read it. He said, yeah, I'm in. And then we found Lenny Bruce, uh, who was the first Special Forces group. Found him on Facebook, you know, and he plays my character's best friend who's killed in the Pentagon, Kenny Suggins. And that's based on my, my real-life Ranger buddy who was killed in the Pentagon. And on and on it went. We put together a four-person cast, um, including Aim Livingston, who was our, also our director out of Orlando. And we, we performed this thing to, um, you know, we, th there wasn't a theater in, in, in Tampa that would rent us space at the time. We were not a recognized troupe or company. A lot of theaters kind of had these reservations, maybe that it was going to be pro-war or whatever. So we couldn't even get a theater. We had no lights, no sound. We had nothing. <laughs> And so we ended up just putting together a pickup team of volunteers. We rented, my wife and I wrote the check ourselves. We rented lights and sound. We rented the ballroom at the Marriott downtown in 2018 on Veterans Day. And we sent out these invitations and, and um, people came. Over 300 people came to bear witness to my midlife crisis. And 
it was uh, one of the most astounding experiences I've ever had. It really, um, the play was very early on then. The storyline was very new. Um, I know we made a ton of mistakes, but at the end of it, the, the audience, and the audience, now mind you, the audience is this mixture of civilians, lots of civilians from the Tampa Bay area who had not worked with the military, but, but supported the military. There were uh, wounded warriors out there. There were Gold Star family members out there. There were active duty members out there and certainly veterans out there post 9-11, Vietnam, all sitting there, Republicans, Democrats. Um, and when the show was over, everybody was literally breathing in unison. You could hear the sniffles all over the audience. And it was probably three to five seconds uh, after we f took our bow and the music stopped that everybody stood up in unison and it was thunderous. It was, it was one of the most amazing moments I'll ever remember, not because of the applause, but because of the unity and connection in that room. It, as I looked out across that room, I just saw Americans sitting together connected to one another around a very hard subject. And as the, the cast, we all kind of looked at each other. And I looked at my wife, and we both knew that this was going to be the beginning, not the end. What we thought was going to be a world premiere, one and done, was not that at all. It was actually the kickoff of a national tour that would ultimately go to 16 cities. Now, the way that we did that, though, because we didn't have any money, everybody in the talk back, we did a talk back after the show, and that ended up being something we would do after every show. We would sit, the, the actors would come out, and we would sit, no politics, just straight down the middle, conversation about what came up for people, lessons learned, things that they'd like to see in the play, things that affected them from the play that changed them. Like one sister said, you know, you guys showed me and two hours what my baby brother's been trying to tell me about this war for five years that kind of thing um, it was just powerful moving stuff and it was the chance for the audience to be heard for them to tell their story because remember this play is an emotional breaching tool it opens people up to the magic and power of shared perspective of story of community engagement which is what we're actually wired to do as humans it's just that we've drummed it out of our civil society Right? So this reintroduces it and creates a safe environment for it to occur. occur. We had um, mental health interventionists, trauma interventionists standing by there. Um, even a, 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 a son of one of, uh, of our fallen, a Marine, um, he stood up and he, and he said, you know, this play um, really, really moved me. It reminded me of my dad. And I lost him this year. And before he, you know, could get any further, he started to break down. And I started to break down. And I just got off the stage and just went over and just gave Ryan a hug, you know. And time just stood still in that moment. And I could feel his dad there. I could feel Ryan. And I knew for me that if I didn't complete on whatever this thing was, I was going to die. I wasn't going to make it because this thing was too important, too big, and there were too many people hurting. And so we didn't have any money. We didn't have any resources. Our little nonprofit barely scrapes by as it is with our storytelling workshops and one or two donors. So, you know, Monty and I were looking at how are we going to do this? So what we ended up doing was we, we did another performance. That was in November of 2018. We did another performance in January of 2019 and I invited people that I had known and worked with over the years and who understood what I was doing with storytelling and were always supportive of it and you know frankly we had been on social media talking about the play and people from all over the country were saying hey man you got to bring that here so I wrote some of those people and I said look we're going to do another performance at a little theater in um, Tampa in January 2019. We'd love for you to come. We got a special announcement about our tour at the end. So come ready to talk about that. And no shit, people flew from all over the country from as far as South Dakota and California to sit in the room and watch us perform this play. And once again, when it was over, everybody was just sitting there breathing in unison. 
And then at one time they stood up and it was this massive standing ovation, this thunderous applause, and then this very, very powerful talk back. Except this time in the talk back, I looked out into the audience and I said, listen, we are looking to take this thing on the road. It's going to be expensive, it's gonna, but we think coming into the communities is what we need. Because there are studies that show right now that, that both civilians and veterans believe that community engagement and storytelling is needed far more than parades and ceremonies for getting our veterans back in the game, for, for helping them close that civil military gap, for shared perspective and understanding. Across the board, it's overwhelming. And, and, and getting out to the community levels where it happens. And I said, we're prepared to go into high schools with this thing, cafeterias, anywhere we need to go, but we need community hosts who can bring us in and who can basically sponsor us, raise, you know, old school, raise money in the community to get the theater paid for, to um, cover the lodging and the travel of the cast. We will show up with a fully prepared show. We will execute that show. We will have trauma interventionists. We will honor the Gold Star families. We will leave your town with your community more connected around the hard topic of war than ever before. And with the people in that room having a better sense of themselves and that emotional breaching tool that is this play will open people up to the hard conversations. Husbands and wives that have been married for years and served in the military and never talked about it will talk about things on the way home they never talked about. You know, parents will talk to their kids. Employers will have a better understanding of why that military spouse is struggles sometimes when her husband's on a six-month float in the Navy. Like, all of that will happen, but we just need the logistical support. And I just looked out in the audience and I said... Who's willing to support this? That's how the tour got put together. I don't know that I've ever talked about that. And every, you know, the people raised their hands, man. These people raised their hands and they didn't know the first thing about hosting a play. And we didn't know the first thing about doing a play on the road. We didn't, this wasn't a professional touring company. Our tour manager, Carrie, lost her husband, an Air Force veteran, to suicide. Our, 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 our stage managers or our stage hands were two buddies, battle buddies from Iraq, one of them having lost his leg, the other one with a TBI. Like that was our cast or our, our team. We were the island of misfit toys in so many ways, but we just all looked at each other and we just said, you know what, let's do this. Let's make it happen. And we did. One of the guys in that room was Brad Bynum. And uh, Brad stood up in the talk back and he said, that scene where you're talking to your wife, Lynn, uh, on Skype, and all of a sudden your firebase gets hit and the Skype call gets cut off and you go outside and have to deal with it. And your family, that's how they got off the phone with you wondering if you were alive or dead. He goes, that happened to me. That very thing happened to me. And it happened more than once. And it really affected my family and it really affected me. Thank you for putting this in the play because I haven't processed this yet. And he said, I want to host this play. I don't know how I'm going to do it, um, but, but I, want to, I want to host this play in Brandon, Mississippi. And, you know, Brad, it was the first time I'd seen him smile in a long time. It was the first time I had seen him feel something down in his chest cavity in a long time. And I looked at him and I said, you got it, man. We're coming to Brandon. So we started to put this tour together. We started to put this, we, we, we moved all of our equipment. All we have for our props is a wall of honor, a little multi-shelf system that my character, Danny Patton, built with his son, Caden, and it's got all these props on it that our cast members put on there. And, um, and then we have like seven wooden actor's blocks, just these wooden blocks, and, and that's, that's our set. And But, you know, we have lights and sound that we... Um, we're using, uh, our, our show is very, you know, we, we replicate a lot of the immersion in combat so that the civilian audience can uh, immerse in this and go for the ride, the emotional ride. And so how do you move that? Well, we moved it in a fucking U-Haul, <laughs> 28,000 miles over 16 cities. We moved in a U-Haul. Chris and Jimmy, the two battle buddies from Iraq, drove this U-Haul and they would leave before the cast. Then the cast would jump in coach and we would fly and um, we would go to these different places, these different cities, Vermilion, South Dakota, um, Santa Barbara, California, Chicago, New York, um, and places in between, you know, and one of those places. And if, if, the, if the community hosts couldn't raise the money, then Monty and I would write the check out of our business. That's just how we did it. Um, 
But one of the first places we went to early on was Brandon, Mississippi, you know, to honor a promise to my buddy Brad. And um, we went there and uh, we got such a welcome from that little community. It was such a welcome. His uh, church was involved. His The high school, uh, the local high school there hosted us. That's where we performed it in the cafeteria. Uh, but we had a huge attendance. And as we um, were rolling into Brandon, I got a, a, a Facebook message because we would advertise the play on Facebook. And it was from a lady named Jenny. And she, um, she said, she introduced herself on Facebook Messenger. And she said, I'm a gold star mom, lost my son Jason in Iraq. Would it be okay if I put something from him on your wall of honor? And I just looked at my wife, Bonnie, and I was like, oh my God, like we're gonna have a gold star mom in this room and she wants to put something on the wall. And Bonnie said, well, then we need to do it. And, and so we made a big deal out of it. We brought Jenny and there was another gold star uh, another warrior named Chris, who was one of uh, Brad's uh, guys from his unit and his family. So we brought them in. We took them on stage before the show. We talked to them about the show and what it was about and, and why we were telling this story and how it was designed to help civilians understand the cost of war while also validating and healing uh, our warriors and their families and letting them make meaning through their own interpretation of the story in a safe environment. And we you know, explained all that, and Jenny immediately got it, and she and she handed me um, Jason's dog tags, and what she went on to tell me, and this would just this just floored me, was that Jason went to school in the building we were in. He went to that high school, and she said, "I'm so grateful that you're telling his story because people walk on eggshells around me, and um, I don't want them to do that. I want them to tell my son's story, and you're telling his story, and he's still alive." when you tell his story. And that began something very, very special. It began a gold star program honoring families of the fallen. Every city we went to, we would reach out and we would bring our gold star families and families of the fallen in ahead of time. We would bring them up on stage with the full cast. We would tell them just like what we did with Jenny and Chris's family. We would put something on the wall. And over time, that wall became like a living mausoleum of, of service and sacrifice and love and, and this play started to take on a whole new level of transcendence that, that, that I never imagined that was gifted, I believe, by God and, and uh, by the, the love of a community who is just trying to heal. And this was our life. Um, and this is what we did for a year until COVID shut us down. And we spent another year after that just buttoned up from COVID like many of you. And the play tour, we were in our second year. It was completely canceled. It was, every, we had to let everybody go. We couldn't pay them. Uh, it was tough. And, um, but ultimately, um, I, I, at the, by the end of the first year in COVID, I looked at my wife and I said, I, you know, I can't keep doing this. Like we're, we've got to get something out there. Our veteran community and our military family community, the nation is hurting, but man, our veterans are really suffering from this isolation and let's see if we can't do something with the play. So we ended up turning it into a film. I thought if Hamilton can do it and put it on Disney plus, then we can turn it into a film. So we raised a quarter million dollars. We got a, you know, a, a, a group of people to help us film it. And we literally filmed it in like five days, working like 18 hour days. And we filmed this thing, you know, it was a stage representation of the, of the play. And then we using our own money and our own prowess, we got it on Amazon prime, Google, Apple TV and Voodoo, I think is where it lives now. And you can still watch it. All proceeds go to our nonprofit, The Hero's Journey. And, and we put that out there for a year. And then I thought that was it, man. I thought, you know, I'm 53 now. That's it. This thing was a good run. It's a very physical play. It's hard on me. We did, we, we did what we were supposed to do. Hundreds of PTS interventions in the lobbies, traveling the country, honoring all these gold star families. Now it's a film. It's passive in terms of like it's evergreen. It's out there. Um, continuing to run, we've done our job and we can move on to other things. And um, in fact, we were still getting the play out there when Afghanistan collapsed in August of 2021. Um, we were just about to launch the play, the film on September 11th on a broader scale. Um, and we shelved everything. We shelved everything. We shelved our rooftop business and we just basically went to work uh, on pineapple. And you guys know the story about that. If you're not, you can go listen to the podcast episodes on it. But what I will tell you that maybe you didn't know is that a guy named Gary Sinise, actually a guy named John Androsic from Five for Fighting, 
uh, saw the film. And then his best pal, Gary Sinise, he reached out to him and he was like, hey, you know, he called me first. And he said, Gary should, should get behind this play. And I'm like, no shit, dude. I've been trying to get this in front of Gary Sinise for five years. I know about Tracers. I read his book 20 times, but it's just impossible to reach him. And he said, no, I'll reach him. I'll get it to him. And he did. And within a couple of days, Gary and I were on the phone walking down the same driveway that I'm walking down now. And we were talking about the his play, Tracers, and my play. And, and he loved the play. And he said, this what would you think about putting this back on the road? And um, I said, well, I don't know, Gary. I said, you know, I'm really tired. Uh, and, and, you know, I don't know that we could put this back together. It's been several years. And he said, what if I produced it? What if we kicked it off in Steppenwolf, just like Tracers? And I just sat there with my jaw on the ground. I mean, because like this was the opportunity to have an impact bigger than I'd ever imagined. And looking at all of the hurt that our veteran community and our military families and Gold Star families were going through from this moral injury of the Afghan abandonment, asking themselves these hard questions. What was the point? Why did my son die? Why did my friend die? Why did I lose my youth there? What was this all about? Now, all of a sudden, we're in a position where we can actually go on the road and bring a story to these communities on the heels of this that allows them to make meaning in their own way and answer those questions in their own way in the safety of a shared story. And then we can work with Gary with his, bring his programs in, do this emotional breaching and open people up to the various programs that Gary, the Gary Sinise Foundation has and that our storytelling workshops have. Like this is a chance to inform, validate, heal, reconnect on a level that I'd never imagined. And I'm going to be honest with you guys. I mean, you're really the first to ever hear this inside scoop on this play. I didn't want to do it any more than I wanted to get involved with pineapple, right? But, but the, the point gets back to my original question. How do you get back up? You know, I had felt such a moral injury um, from this whole Afghanistan abandonment. Writing that book gutted me. It, it, re it reinserted me into that shit-filled government world of careerism and, and self-preservation that I wanted nothing to do with in 2013. And now I was back in it. Um, it was leaving so many of our allies behind, including really good friends of mine who are still on the run from the Taliban and starving. And there's nothing I can do to help them. Like all that shit, I didn't want to get involved with, with the play anymore because I, that, all that was going to come back up again. And frankly, my wife and I spent thousands and thousands of dollars on this play. Like it was costly. It was, there was scar tissue. And, but when Gary posed it the way that he posed it, and I said to him, Gary, I think this could be a post 9-11 tracers because we are on the tsunami of a veteran mental health crisis. Um, we are in sore need of shared perspective and connection at a community level with our civilians. Our civilians don't understand the cost of modern war. They think it's a fucking Fortnite game. Our politicians don't have any skin in the game. They throw our our young people into the fray like without any thought or reservation and, or any emotional context or, or connection to it. And so I, I, I think we do need this. And then he asked me the question I was kind of hoping he wouldn't ask is, will you play Danny Patton? And um, I, I was on speaker and my wife just kind of looked at me and she smiled and I knew that I was green lighted to do that. And I said, I will. And that began the process to put this whole production together and we've kept it quiet this was back in the late spring we, we've kept it quiet we've worked this quietly we started rehearsals in august we have members of the old cast but we have new cast members in here uh, i spent the summer doing a complete rewrite to include some of the context of what we are all feeling from the afghan abandonment the ending is brand new there are twists and turns uh, if you've seen the play, you know, the operators who are the shapeshifters, they have completely new roles and interactions now. Like, you're going to be watching a new play. Even if you've seen the film, if you've seen the play, you need to see this. And we started rehearsing hard. We brought in director Carl Bury. Remember the guy I told you I trained with who trained under Larry Moss? We brought him in as our director. And the guy is amazing. The way he has dialed this thing up emotionally. There are just so many substantive changes to this play that I truly do believe that this project is going to be a leading project for closing the civil military gap, for informing civilians on the cost of modern war, informing politicians and bureaucrats 
on the cost of modern war. Not in an anti-war or pro-war way, but in a storytelling way so that you feel at an emotional chest cavity level the weight that these warriors and their families feel. And that that should be, you know, if we're going to ask our warriors, you know, to go fight these wars and these conflicts, we damn sure need to feel what it is that we're asking them to get to do to the degree that we can. That's important because there needs to be a shared load. And that's what this play does. Plus, it allows us to go into safe space with a community sitting together because there are so many civilians who have said, I want to help our Afghan veterans, our post 9-11 veterans move past this debacle. And I know that they're going to have a hard time with it, but I don't interact regularly with veterans and I don't know how to talk to them about it. This allows us to do that. This allows us to share the story from the stage by people who lived it in a mixed audience and then do a talk back afterwards, a storytelling workshop that weekend, trauma intervention is standing by for people who are not getting help. Right? And it's a story of hope and ascension. It, there is the pain and struggle of war, but at the end of the day, it's about, it's about letting go of that pain. And it's what this country needs. And, and we, are, we are now saddling this thing up, and it's why I'm so excited. We are getting back up. I am getting back up. This cast is getting back up. Our team is getting back up. And I need you to get back up, because I know this year, in many ways, for some of you listening to this, has been hard. It has been challenging it has been gut punch it has been just ripping at times and whether you served in the military or not whether you were involved with the afghanistan withdrawal or not there's been a lot that has been thrown at you over the last several years right we have to get back up we have to get back in the game and storytelling and connection is how we do that right you know i've asked you before that was our pineapple express what's yours well this is my next pineapple express in fact if you want to know what led to Pineapple Express, you got to come see this play because it follows the story of Master Sergeant Danny Patton, a career Green Beret who goes through the, almost the entire war. And you see firsthand through his eyes, through his wife's eyes, through his child's eyes, what happened with this war. And we tell this story and it's at a very personal level and it will show you what happened and why Operation Pineapple Express and Dunkirk and Moral Compass actually occurred. I would be remiss if I didn't close this out with telling you that a couple of weeks ago when I got that news that Brad had died, I learned that he had gone out on another binge. It had been a long time since he had done that, his wife Dana told me. But he had gone out, he had gone missing. Dana feared the worst and they, they found him in a, in a hotel dead. There's a whole lot of questions but I know at the end of the day that the load was more than Brad could bear I know that because um, I still have the text messages that he sent me when Afghanistan collapsed I still have the messages that he wrote me about his interpreter that he wished he could go get and is there any way that I know anybody that could get him close to Afghanistan where he could maybe help or volunteer and when pineapple started to happen, he wrote me and just said, I'm so proud of what you guys are doing. Is there anything that I can do? And it broke him, you know? It broke him like it broke a lot of us, but um, that doesn't have to be the answer and it shouldn't be the answer. Brad was a host of this play. He found meaning in this play. He was the reason that we honored Gold Star families in this play because of what happened in that town of Brandon. And I will never forget him. He's now integrated into this play. We include his story. It was part of my rewrite very last minute. But I just want you to understand that for me, getting back up is not easy. No more easy than it is for you. I've heard general officers uh, who I trusted in this war and put a lot of my faith in say publicly that we need to stop complaining about what happened in Afghanistan because it makes us look like victims. We need to stop talking about betrayal, even though 73% of Afghan war veterans feel betrayed, 60% feel humiliated. Uh, this is not about victimhood. This is not about uh, pity parties. The people that I know have volunteered 
to help their fellow Afghans have, have lost their savings accounts, their kids' college funds. They've gone through more mental health issues than they probably did when they were on active duty. Uh, many of them are out of money. Uh, Mike, part of Moral Compass, just looked, wrote us last night and said that he doesn't even have the money to take his family on vacation anymore. He's lost everything because of his efforts to help his Afghan partners. Like this is tough stuff. This is where we are. This, but this is who we are, right? If you, if you, if you're a veteran listening to this, if you're a civilian who supports veterans, like this is who we are. This is not about poor, pitiful me shit. This is not about sitting around wringing your hands. This is about taking your lived experiences and repurposing them in the service of others through storytelling. This is what I call the generosity of scars. And it is back and it is what we're doing. And, and it, this is our run at it. But there are a range of other things that you can do in the same fashion, whether you served or not, right? Repurposing your struggles in the service of others through storytelling, right? You know, that bad trade that you made on the desk when you were a junior associate or that bad decision that you made as a teenager when you're talking to your kid about pushing away from uh, peer pressure. Like those, those scars that you have are some of the greatest attributes in your inventory for leadership. And they're usually the stories you don't wanna tell your, each other or other people, and even more importantly, the stories you don't wanna tell yourself. Those are the stories that are in Last Out, those are the stories that are in pineapple. Those are the stories that I hope you'll bring into your life because the world is starving, starving for authentic leadership. The world is starving for leaders who are generous with their scars, who repurpose their struggles in the service of others. For leaders who look around and say, nobody's coming, fine, I'll lead, right? No one's gonna address the moral injury that our communities are facing right now. Nobody is dealing with the, the pain of what's happened in Afghanistan. Nobody is telling our Gold Star families that we love them and what their and their sacrifice mattered. Fine, we'll do it. We'll go into those cafeterias, high schools, theaters, and we'll tell the story. And we're not gonna ask for permission. That is where we have to go as a country, I believe. That is what rooftop leadership's about. That's what people need and people are craving in this time of division when our institutional leaders are not. So that's how I believe we get back up. That's how I believe we do what we do. So uh, I want you to be part of Last Out. I hope you'll go to lastoutplay.com. Um, we have also have a Friends of Last Out on social media, Folo. Um, you know, follow us. If you go see a show, um, write a review on it or, or post on it on social media. If you'd like to donate to our cause, you can go to theheroesjourney.org um, or scottman.com. There's a donate button there. Um, even just sharing the word about the play to people in towns that we're going to on lastoutplay.com. We've got the tour schedule that'll be there soon. Um, come to a show, come to sit in the talk back. And if you can't do that, at least go to Google TV or Amazon Prime and watch Last Out on film and then share it with a friend. Um, there's a lot we can do to make meaning and heal and inform civilians on the cost of war coming out of what happened in this 20 year war. And if we don't, then we're gonna send our kids down the same path. And I don't know that our civil society can handle that. So this is a way for us to really do something important. It doesn't require a heavy lift. We're gonna do the heavy lift, but we'd love for you to be part of us on that journey. Thanks for letting me have this driveway talk with you. I feel uh, rejuvenated, ready to get into it. Uh, we're gonna start kicking the playoff hard and you'll see it coming to a town near you. Thanks for what you do. Thanks for believing in all of this and for leading the way that you do. I'll see you on the rooftop. Mm -hmm.